Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas, and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Shout out to our super producer, Max Williams. I'm Ben Bolin. Uh, I want to give a special thank you at the top of today's show to my one and only co-host, Mr. Noel Brown. Noel, I've got you in my front in the front of my mind here because just from the title, I think a lot of longtime listeners are going to know why this, this is a hard one for you. Kaka. Ben, Kaka. Are we doing last names now? Is that that's a new addition? I don't even think I knew you had a last name. Uh, you're just Ben to me, <laughs> right? Right. I use a use a lot of personas, but figure we could we could go a little more formal. You know, I like now it. that I like now it. that we're spinning out more ridiculous shows. You know what mm. I mean? What if there's another Noel or Ben on one of those shows? Yeah, I mean, then if it like if there's another Noel Brown or Ben Bull, and then we got to start rocking middle names, and I don't think you want to reveal your middle name. I don't even want to talk about mine. So God forbid that ever happened. But it's true, Ben. I am a. I do. You know, look. Let me be real. I'm not as scared of birds as I make it out to be. I'm like, if I wouldn't want one to like come at me, you know, that would freak me out. But I'm not like gonna run if I see a, a bird, you know, like in a park or something like that. But I do have this theory that my fear of birds stems from an unfortunate encounter with seagulls when I was a young child. My grandpapa would take me to the beach and, you know, feed the gulls as you do. And I, I just have this like kind of traumatic memory of being swarmed upon by gulls, possibly California gulls. Who's to say? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, those moments in childhood often can be some of the most impactful memories we've ever had. I found out the hard way that some birds and their bills have something very much like teeth when I was mm. a child actor in Nashville's uh, Opryland Amusement Park and got attacked by some of the birds there, uh, which all the adults thought was hilarious. I still have a scar on my finger from it. 
I love that you mentioned the California goal because the California goal is the subject of today's episode, The Miracle of the Goals. If you are a fan of state-level trivia, then you may have run across this kind of weird fact before. Like other states, Utah has an official state bird. That official state bird, however, is the one and only California gull. So first question, why on earth would a state adopt a bird with another state's name on it? It's a great question, man. But also, I just want to acknowledge this is our Utah episode. We never have to talk about Utah again. This this is our Utah episode. This is our Utah episode. Um, it's true, though. Uh, but there's a real there's a reason why the California gull is the state bird of Utah. And that is because of Mormon settlers. We know that Utah has a big you know, history and tradition in the Mormon faith. And Mormons are who settled Utah. And they had a rough go of it. Um, in 1848, there was a frost in the month of April that was going to wipe out all of their crops and uh, leave them, you know, potentially to starve and freeze. And if that wasn't enough, they essentially had like a biblical plague-like swarm of crickets that descended upon their fields, also threatening to wipe out their crops and, you know, leave them to starve and, and freeze. But here's the thing. The crickets, which are actually part of the Katie did family, they can't fly they just hop, you know, they hop from from plant to plant and just devour everything in sight. When you have a swarm of these things, it is quite a formidable thing to behold. And they just didn't know what to do. They didn't have like pesticides at the time. They just could like crush them. But here's the thing. These insects are cannibalistic. So when you crush them, it's like, ooh, more yummy things to eat. And they start eating the carcasses of their fallen comrades, which just brings on more of these uh, swarming insects. Mm -hmm. And contemporary reports, journals at the time, recalled settlers resorting to eating wild game and eating wolves to survive. But then we could get like a hopeful music cue of some sort, Max. Perfect. Uh, Then, according to the tale, thousands of gulls came to the rescue. They came to the rescue the way, like, the eagles come in Lord of the Rings, the Battle of Five Armies. They descended upon the fields. They began eating all these crickets. Uh, According to legend, the gulls even had to stop to puke up the crickets and then go back and eat some more. And they eventually ate so many that this nigh-unstoppable force backed off. And the late arrival of these birds not only saved the crops, but in doing so, ensured the survival of thousands of settlers. This this was called the Miracle of the Gulls. And in 1913, a monument depicting two big metal bronze seagulls perched atop a granite column was erected in Salt Lake City's Temple Square. I've actually seen this the last time I was in uh, Salt Lake City, which is a beautiful place with a lot of uh, a lot of striking architecture, right? So mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. big bird statue didn't stand out as much as it might in another city. But that's that's the reason that the California gull has been adopted as Utah's state bird. But today's episode is about the questions regarding the accuracy of this, the legend of the miracle of gulls or the so-called cricket war. How Mm -hmm. true is the story? 
It's a good question, Ben. And to answer that, we should travel back to 1848 after the Mormons had successfully uh, made it through a a brutal winter, their first winter in the uh, Salt Lake Valley where they had settled. And, you know, this was a very tough group of, of settlers. They knew how to work the land and they knew how to deal with the elements, but this one was particularly nasty. And the previous autumn, they had laid uh, the seeds for a grain crop that they were hoping to uh, enjoy in the following spring. It looked like it was all going to go their way. All of their best laid plans were going to come to fruition, and they were going to have a ton of grain on their hands. But they essentially began to endure like the tortures of the damned, you know, some Job-like biblical problems. They came twofold right? First, this deadly frost that we talked about, and then that, you know, depending on the source, insatiable horde of these insects, these crickets. And we we do have quite a few accounts of this. One from uh, Mrs. Lorenzo Dow Young, who wrote of this period, we have grappled with the frost, but today, to our utter astonishment, the crickets came by millions, sweeping everything before them. They first attacked a patch of beans, for us, and in 20 minutes, there was not a vestige of them to be seen. They next sweep over peas, then came into our garden, took everything clean. We went out with brush and undertook to drive them, but they were too strong for us. I want to come in here. I want to step back for a moment to make a really important point with some of these sources that we're using for today's show. We have members of the Church of Latter-day Saints in the audience today. And if I understand correctly, the current preferred term uh, is not Mormon, it is LDS, or Latter-day Saints. So we do realize that on the show, and we, uh, of course, uh, respect the choice of terms that are preferred. For the accuracy of these accounts from these experts, we are using their words when we when we use the phrase Mormon and mean no offense by that. So back to some of these quotes, I'll read uh, two much shorter ones. Another person at the time from these contemporary journals, Eliza R. Snow, says, The morning's frost in unison with the ravages of the crickets for a few days past produces many sighs and occasionally some long faces. And that's because Snow at the time like many people, doesn't realize how dire this situation will become. And then a guy named Isaac Haight is a little more cognizant, I think, of the trouble on the horizon, both in terms of literal crickets and in terms of the future of the colony. And he says... Crops began to suffer for want of rain. It's quite cold and very dry. Crickets destroyed some crops and are eating the heads off the grain as soon as it heads out, meaning when it breaks through the soil, and says the prospects for grain are discouraging. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort. High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. That's right. And uh, Susan Young Gates uh, wrote in a biography of her father, Brigham Young, who was the second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, came out in 1930, uh, wrote of the uh, kind of <laughs> tribulations they experienced uh, in, in this way. Just as the crops were giving promise of a much-needed harvest, swarms of crickets hovered over the plowed lands like a devastating army, darkening the earth for miles around, eating off every blade of grass and every growing thing. Terrifying. Um, again, really terrifying. And, and and a lot of this language does have that kind of, you know, biblical kind of weight to it, um, which, sure. which makes a lot of sense. It's kind of funny, too, when you think of crickets, like, as, uh, you know, the sound you hear when, like, a joke doesn't land. This is a much different sound. This would have been like an absolute just cacophony of buzzing and, you know, just crunching and really, really scary stuff. A um, chittering susurrus. I, 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 I do have to tell you, though, no, one of my first questions in the research for this was the following. As a guy who was eating crickets in the past, I know I'm not alone here, they are a food source. Like, they're rich yep. in protein. Other people, the original residents 
of this part of the world. Uh, I had probably eaten them in the past, right? Like, oh, wait, no, Max, have you guys, I just want, I'm very curious. Have you guys ever eaten crickets? No, I have not, but I, I would try it. I would definitely do it. I just have never been in the opportunity where someone's like, hey, eat this cricket. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'll give it a try. There's a really good taqueria here in Atlanta called El Tesoro, and they include uh, crickets as an add-on to any of their of their dishes, their tacos. I have not had them, but I know that they're very popular in Mexico and um, other parts of the world, and very, very common as sources of protein, like you said. And you can put a nice seasoning blend on them, and they are probably really crunchy and delicious. I'm all about it. I just, like, like Max said, haven't really... Uh, been in that situation. And that's not true. I mean, I've been to this taco place and I thought about it, but I think I decided not to. But you know what? After this story, next time I will. Because you got to wonder, Ben, you're right. The uh, the Native American population that lived in this part of the world prior to the LDS uh, community kind of coming and settling would have eaten these. Uh, it absolutely would have been a, a very reasonable staple food for them, kind of, right? Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, I know where the three of us are going to go hang when we when we get uh, for our when we get together for our first in person kick it session, you're you're absolutely right, Noel. A lot of indigenous residents, a lot of Native American foragers, were not just eating crickets, but they were eating insects of one kind or another. According to Utah archaeologist David Madsen, there is an array of ethnographic and ethnohistorical data on how they were eating these insects, how they would capture them how they would prepare them, uh, and then how they would ultimately consume them. And what's interesting to me about this is, you know, ridiculous historians, as you may or may not know, we're all based here in the South. In the Southern parts of the U.S., there is one culinary rule, which is you can fry anything. So I, I bet like the early LDS settlers would have been able to fry stuff. It just, it didn't seem like food to them culturally. Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, instead, instead, they went for the wolves, which would have probably been quite greasy and gamey. Uh, it's almost like mm-hmm. they missed the boat on this. Right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Because the thing is now what, what they were getting was if it were not for these uh, this cultural unfamiliarity, uh, they were getting a kind of extra side dish, even an entree. You know, now you could have mm-hmm. crickets with your grain and it would have been super, super easy to harvest these, Madsen has this great line where he he looks for a comparison and he says, I estimate that if a whale fell out of the sky, you could get more calories just eating crickets than you could cutting up the whale, which I think is that if that feels like hyperbole, but at the very least, it gives you a sense of just how many crickets we're talking about, right? I guess the argument is that like the crops that the crickets were devouring possibly would have generated less sustenance than the crickets themselves if they had only kind of looked at it through a different lens and realized like, oh, this is actually good, hmm. could, could be food. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, I think that's a good point, right? Because they're, they're protein rich rather mm-hmm. than carbohydrate rich. But there's another thing here. We know that LDS members at the time were not clueless they knew that the native populations would forage for insects. And you can even see notes again in those journals where there are people who are saying, look, you know, the native communities here have used insects as a food source. And uh, according to some reports, some of the more desperate or I guess we could say open-minded settlers would even eat a couple bugs 
now and then, but they also said this was a last resort and they felt like the crickets themselves were vindictive little demons. Well, I mean, especially when you read all the language, you know, around this and all the accounts, like they did look at this as like a almost a biblical plague. And mm. I imagine that they would they would associate uh, those crickets with some sort of malevolent force or at the very least like the hand of God and maybe probably not a good idea to eat them. You know, yeah. they're like possessed with some kind of, you know, bad spirits or something like that. Mm. Um, but in May of 1848, after this, you know, epidemic, of crickets, the pioneers were severely malnourished. They were not looking so good. They were very hungry and they were desperate to the point where they would have eaten anything. So again, it's just kind of a shame. It feels like a missed opportunity. But uh, the doctor, uh, Pretty Meeks, who was a pioneer doctor, he described the winter of 1847 to 48 for his family like this. He said, my family went several months without a satisfying meal of vittles. I went sometimes a mile up Jordan to a patch of wild roses to get the berries to eat, which I would eat as rapid a hog, stems and all. I shot hawks and crows and they eat well. I would go and search the mire holes and find cattle dead and would fleece of what meat I could and eat it. And then he talks also about how they would eat wolf meat and uh, and roots and thistles and various unpleasant, you know, things they could just get out of the earth, um, but not particularly uh, tasty. And then he goes, finally, the crickets came so thick it made the earth black in places. And it did look like they would take what little we had growing, which looked nice and flourishing. Now everything looked gloomy. Our provisions giving out and the crickets eating up what little we had growing. And we a thousand miles away from supplies. Right, right. Protein, protein everywhere, but not a bite to eat, apparently. And things only, uh, only worsened as we get to what will be known as the Great Cricket War. These farmers are watching. They feel helpless and impotent as crickets devour acres and acres of not just grain, but also vegetables. And of course, we can't tell this story without mentioning Brigham Young. At the time, he was leading a large group of people across the plains, and he was getting reports that some folks were considering leaving the area that would become Utah and heading out west, lighting out for the territories, going to Oregon or California or Oregon, uh, as I believe some people pronounce it. Other people told Young to stop letting folks migrate over there because other people were already starving. And families were like, it sounds funny today, but we have to realize this was a serious life or death situation. People were fighting back crickets with brushes, with sticks, whipping at them with ropes. And, and no matter what they did, they could not stem this insectoid tide. There's a guy named William G. Hartley who's really interesting. He wrote about the miracle of the gulls in an article called Mormons, Crickets, and Gulls, A New Look at an Old Story. And he wrote this uh, back in 1970 for an historical publication called Utah Historical Quarterly. And he's the one who gives us a great example of the various tactics people tried, the LDS members of the Saints tried. When the brooms and the clubs and the sticks didn't work, they tried to drown the crickets, and then they tried to drive them into fire, and then they went into the fields with tin pans and bells to clang and hope that right. they could scare them with noise. 
I know that's almost like the kind of thing you think about with uh, other, you know, religious cultures. Uh, for example, I think Chinese New Year, right, where they uh, bang on, you know, top pots and pans and set off fireworks to like scare away evil spirits. This this seems to be. I mean, obviously it's functional as well, but I don't know that crickets really spook easily. You know, I, I feel like they're kind of uh, they have a one track mind. Uh, I'm gonna really tell you, man, startle so, a cricket. Yeah, I had I had pet crickets growing up. You know, I was I I. Uh, was an outdoors kid. So I, you know, I'd have like a frog in a box or like, here's my new turtle pal. And year, God, years and years ago now, I got some crickets and I caught them in the wild because I wanted to feed them to a lizard that I had also caught, but I didn't know anything about the lizard and I just thought it made sense. But then I learned about lucky crickets and I was like, okay, I'm going to keep a few of these. And then one of our family friends growing up who's an adult, like shook his head and said, you should just, you should just let the crickets go or try to feed them to the lizard. And I said, why? And he said, because crickets are dumb. And I didn't realize this, Noel, until I had this cricket in a little homemade terrarium. And I had like a little, I can't stress how small an amount of water this is. And the cricket managed to drown in it. It, it like oh, hopped wow. in. And just laid there and drowned. Ah, uh, poor little guy. I'm just saying they're not they're not going to get an insect mensa for sure. No, I, I got you. And, and crickets are you know popular or, or I guess staple foods for feeding lots of pets. Like uh, I believe turtles eat crickets. Like mm-hmm. you know you buy crickets usually for the purposes of uh, food for your right. for your animals. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And maybe I'm unfairly maligning the intelligence of crickets because I believe they actually breathe through the sides of their bodies. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, they've got, uh, what are they called, spiracles on the sides. So maybe maybe I was just a sadistic child. You know what I mean? Maybe I could have saved it. Uh, I'm haunted, Noel. I'm haunted by this. <laughs> at least you weren't like pulling the wings off of flies or anything, Ben. Yeah, right. And and, and at least it wasn't a horde of crickets. So mm-hmm. we know that all these all these attempts did not work. And that's when the gulls appeared to save the day. So as the pioneers are increasingly concerned about their future, you know, the future of the, their families, the future of their community, everything, uh, they turn to religion and they have a three-day fast and prayer. And again, you know, I love that you're pointing out sort of the spiritual and religious mindset in which this occurs because these are seen as divine actions. And so, they, you know, so it makes sense that they would turn to attempts for divine intercession, right? And they, you know, the, right. the secular things aren't working. You can't hit them with a broom and you can't drown them and you can't burn them. So uh, according to Susie Young Gates, they, uh, they try this three-day fast prayer ritual and in their minds, it absolutely works. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort. High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone, goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five! High Five! five. Casino! Casino! Casino. Win! 
Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And we're going to get into, you know, how much did it work and how much did these goals actually save the day? Because mm -hmm. you may have noticed we are talking about and reading accounts of people saying that the crickets like devoured everything. So you have these goals swooping in and eating the crickets and getting rid of them. But by that point, uh, sure was a lot of damage already done, wasn't there, Ben? That's a very good point. Yes, Noel, you are correct. Because the it's not as if the gulls automatically came chasing the crickets, right? These people went through some trials and tribulations. And when they are at their lowest point, when they are seriously considering the end of their community as they know it, well, let's turn to Susie Young Gates for this. 
After the prayer, after the three-day fast, she writes, And behold, a miracle, rising from the borders of the lake, appeared myriad snow-white gulls. From whence they came, and what was their purpose, the pioneers could not determine. Settling upon fields black with the millions of crickets, the gulls seized them and swallowed them, as if unable to fully gorge themselves. When their crops were full, the birds would hop over a ditch, bank, or convenient hillock, and disgorge themselves, then return again to feed upon the countless crickets, the people stood in awe at this direct answer to their prayer. I mean, that sounds like a miracle. It does. It does. It makes for a good story. I love the use of the word disgorge. That's just a fancy word for puke, like we said at the top of the show. I like hillock. What's a hillock? Hillock. uh, Some sort of small hill? Rivulet, yeah, exactly. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe uh, like a hillet, you know, like a like a small uh, <laughs> diminutive hill. Um, but that you have more, you know, accounts like this. Like Orson F. Whitney said something similar. Like when it seemed that nothing could stay the devastation, great flocks of gulls appeared, filling the air with their white wings and plaintive cries, and settled down upon the half-ruined fields. All day long they gorged themselves and yada, yada, yada. You get it. But doesn't all this kind of sound hyperbolic to you, Ben? Doesn't all this sound like it has an agenda? Like it's trying to really push this angle of like, it was a miracle from God and we made it happen. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing, because I would almost categorize the accounts in two different sort of buckets. So the people who are writing on the ground as this is happening To me, it makes sense that they would absolutely see this as an act of the divine or a miracle. But the people writing in the years and decades afterwards, I think they might be playing a little telephone and they they Mm -hmm. may be embellishing, you know. Um, We know specifically that it was around early June, maybe June 9th or so, when these goals first appeared. And they stayed for three weeks. They showed up every day for three weeks. And one pioneer, John Smith, said that there must have been thousands and thousands of them. And people were amazed to find these lumps of dead, vomited crickets. That's one of the things that people focus on. And one of the things that made it, I I believe, seem miraculous to them, the goals were just because they were eating and regurgitating crickets, it's almost like they were just there to kill them rather than to eat their fill. So this, I think, adds to that legendary status. And man, it just became more and more of a legend ever since then. Like less than five months later, people were writing about this and it was starting to make more and more news. We have uh, multitudes of accounts of this, but despite these glowing accounts and these stories that make this seem like an epic, which in a way it was, we do have to note, this was not the only time crickets invaded the area, right? I think crickets regularly returned during harvest seasons. And not only that, like, this wasn't like the first miraculous appearance of seagulls either, right? They were very much, um, you know, something that would have been around most of the time, right? I mean, even even today, like in Salt Lake City, seagulls are known for being kind of like the billy goats of the air. Like they will eat just about anything and are often seen kind of hovering around like garbage dumps, for example, right? (laughs) That's a good way to put it. I like that, the billy goats of the city. Yeah, there's not much that seagulls won't eat, sometimes to their detriment. But we know that after... 1848, 
crickets came back during the harvest season other years. And sometimes in different parts of Utah, even more crickets showed up than the ones that showed up in 1848. In pretty much every single example of a cricket invasion, the gulls came back to feast on the crickets again. So what we may have been seeing was just a natural phenomenon or a cycle. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. But it's still, it's still those other ones, even those other cricket infestations, even if they were bigger, they still didn't get as much press as the 1848 miracle. Exactly right. Exactly right. No, no, it's very true. And I think, you know, again, not to be cynical, but it does all kind of point to this being a bit of a trumped up miracle that uh, kind of became this legendary part of, of the lore of Salt Lake City or of, of Utah and of the LDS faith. Those things are important. I'm not saying it didn't happen um, or it wasn't a consequential occurrence that maybe helped them out, but uh, it does sure seem like they were a little bit on the late side in terms of like swooping in to save the day. So let's explore that just a little bit. It is a very, like I said, 170 years later, uh, historians like Stephen Harper, for example, or uh, William Hartley, uh, Casey Griffiths, you know, specifically Brigham Young University, who are all scholars of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at Brigham Young University, have tried to, you know, clarify some of the aspects of the story uh, that even they feel have been, you know, overstated or over-dramatized, let's say. The various popular accounts that we've read that all kind of have a bit of an air of hyperbole to them, they are looking to kind of improve upon those accounts or at the very least back them up with more historical facts rather than these legendary qualities they seem to have. Hartley writes this about it. He says, the fact remains nonetheless that the 1848 Mormon pioneers would have suffered more than they did had not the gulls come to their aid, okay? Physically, the gulls helped avert a complete agricultural disaster. So they definitely had decimated a lot of the crops, but they weren't completely too late to, to help, you know, salvage some of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And let me give some context for what Harper, Hartley, and Griffiths are working through. This was considered a legitimate miracle. Because of the events of 1848, the community revered the bird, and they even started creating laws to punish people for killing a gull. That would be a fine of $5. But you could also have been found in violation of the law by, quote, harassing the bird. I don't know what extent to that. <laughs> I don't know how they define harassment, but I love the idea of somebody new to town, walking down like a main drag of Salt Lake City, seeing a bird and going, hey, you, you know, knucklehead. And then they get busted. They get thrown in the, you know, the bird harassment tank and they have to pay $5, which was a lot of money in 1848. We know that it was called a miracle as soon as September of 1853, and people got into this legend. So like you said, centuries later, uh, these historians are working against a really popular idea. You know what I mean? There, I'm sure there are people who are aware of the other occurrences, and they're saying, well, this is kind of a legend, but we want to hold on to it because we really like this story. And now you have to be part of being an historian sometimes is you have to be the party pooper who comes in and like says, actually, uh, mm. this is this is weird because Hartley found something really interesting 
when he looked at the original descriptions of those cricket invasions. And he says, it must not be overlooked that this official summary of valley experiences from the first arrival of the pioneers until 1849 nowhere mentions the gulls, despite prominent notice paid to the cricket plague. So this leads Hartley to argue that the actual physical benefit brought by those gulls could not, probably wasn't as extensive as the story would have us believe. And that that's pretty interesting. I think it goes to your point about the timing of when the gulls showed up and how much help they actually provided. Yeah, it's true. Um, but, but again, it, it wasn't an absolute zero-sum game. They possibly appeared on a smaller scale than um, is believed or is, is recounted by, again, like some of these accounts just very clearly have kind of an agenda. But it did happen, and it was something that did make a difference. Uh, there's a really good quote from Griffiths in the Desert News where he says, I'm not ready to tear down the Seagull Monument on Temple Square because the gulls are only a symbol of the greater miracle that the pioneers were able to survive in the valley at all given the conditions they lived in. The modern lesson might be constantly scanning the horizon for a flock of gulls when help might be before us in a smaller, more simple way. That's a really good point. It's a good way of looking at it. So the gulls, in making them the state bird and in erecting this monument, they really are more of a symbol, kind of, right, of like the perseverance of of these uh, settlers and these pioneers and about their resilience in the face of like all this adversity, which absolutely happened. But maybe the gulls were not like the magic bullet from on high that everyone seems to, to think they were, or at least, the you know, some of the accounts would indicate. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not we're not here to disparage a good story, right? So we're glad to report that the real truth is not too far off from fiction. If you live in Utah today, you'll see the core elements of this story. Seagulls are everywhere in the Salt Lake Valley and they eat bugs. But to your point, Noel, they will eat almost anything up to and including garbage. You called them Billy Goats of the Sky. I think it's fair to call them Airborne Terrares, if anybody yes. remembers that guy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, the guy that he maybe ate a baby. We talked about him last episode, too, I think. Yeah. Uh, unproven, but it's, uh, again, also the stuff of legend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. That, there you have it. Like uh, I think um, it, it's, uh, it's interesting the way you're right, that historical game of telephone happens, especially when there's sort of like a... Um, a need to create sort of like a rallying point, Mm -hmm. you know, a story with which all future, you know, members of this faith can kind of rally around. It's something that, you know, we see in like the Christian Bible where it's like, is this story like more of a, an allegory or is it meant to be literal? And, uh, you know, obviously there are folks who take everything in the Bible as being completely literal. And then there are those who feel that they are more kind of uh, metaphors or stories that you can kind of learn lessons from, but that probably didn't happen exactly the way they're, uh, they're told, but they're effective uh, nonetheless, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the crickets are still there. And they can still be a problem. They can still be a threat. As recently as 2003, crickets did more than $25 million of damage, agriculturally speaking. But you may be happy to know that some farmers have come up with a new method of fighting them that doesn't involve seagulls. According to our good friends at Mental Floss, some farmers found that blasting rock music around their fields apparently kept the crickets at bay. And you might be wondering, what 
what rock music are they talking about, right? Are they going indie? Are they going glam rock? Are they going heavy metal? Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, crickets are not fans of Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones. So that's that's your key. That's your new insect repellent, folks. Must <laughs> be a, must be a frequency range thing, I guess, or maybe they. Uh, yeah, I wonder if you could like get rid of a plague of crickets with like a certain note, like a certain frequency that would just mm. cause them all to flee in terror. Or maybe you just have to play like sticky fingers for them or something. You know, that's a good question. And you know, this inspires me to propose that we maybe we in the future we can make an episode on music as a weapon. Actually, that could be on stuff they don't want you to know as well, Our uh, the other show that we do together. Agreed. Oh, agreed. I love the idea of sonic weapons. I, I don't love it. It's terrifying. And we've actually seen them deployed in a certain kind of crowd dispersal situations during a lot of these protests. I think there was sort of like a, an example of um, a use of experimental sonic weapons. And wh- where was it, Ben? Somewhere in South America, right? Yeah, there have been sonic weapons used to disperse crowds of humans in protest. There have been sonic weapons apparently used to interfere with embassies in in Cuba, as well as uh, allegedly China. This story has, has a lot of legs, man. It's got a lot of cricket legs. Oh, gosh. Yeah, get, let me get some chirps on that one, Max. Got me with the chirps. There he is. This is the thumbs up from Max. That's how Nolan and I know that we've done we've done an okay job here. Uh, but we want to... Oh, wow. Okay, we got a hand wave from Max. Max, what's a hand wave mean? Scale of one to ten. I'll leave that up to your own interpretation right wow. there. Fair. I'm going to be haunted. Max, he's such an enigma. But yeah, huge thanks to Max, as always. Super producer Max Williams. Alex Williams, brother of Max, who composed this theme. Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Jonathan Strickland, the quizster. Miss that guy. Hope he mm-hmm. Zoom bombs us again soon. Yeah, he's our one-man plague of crickets. <laughs> I wonder if he knows how many weird nicknames we give him at the end of the show. I hope he enjoys them. The one and only quizster, folks. Give it up for him. Also, give it up for our excellent research associate, Gabe Luzier, our friend of the show, Eve's Jeff Coat, and... Uh, no, I gotta say, yeah, this this is a this is a pretty fun one. I would categorize this as, um, gosh, would it be a step too far to say it's modern U.S. mythology? I think so. No, yeah, that that was the the thing that fascinated me about it too. And that's you know, I mean, I mean, the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is relatively speaking a you know newer religion. So it's it's interesting to to look at the uh, kind of mythology behind that. And there's a lot more to it as well um, that maybe we should discuss on another episode. Agreed. Agreed. Main takeaway from this one is you don't have to trust seagulls, but respect their work. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. 
Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.